Welcome everyone. I'm Cassandra Etienne with Legal Services of New Jersey. LSNJ coordinates and supports the system of regional legal services programs that provide legal assistance in civil matters to low-income individuals across the state. In today's podcast, LSNJ attorney Jay Rajaraman will be talking about the importance of family stabilization and preventive services in the child welfare system, including the Family First Prevention Services Act, passed on February 9, 2018. We'll hear from Kanita, a mom whose children were removed from her care after she lost her subsidized housing, moved into a motel with her children, and requested help from the local welfare office. It wasn't about drugs, it wasn't about crime, it was strictly for homelessness. That was the call, that was, it was trying to get help. And also from Jerry Milner, Associate Commissioner of the Children's Bureau with the Department of Health and Human Services, who has been instrumental in shifting priorities at the federal level towards more services to prevent removals of children from their families and entering the foster care system. If we can help families, even very poor families, to escape some of the isolation that comes from living in a impoverished situation, to um, build the resiliency of those parents to cope uh, with the very frustrating and difficult situations that poverty brings to their lives, then I think we have an opportunity to strengthen their overall protective capacity, even if we're not able to totally lift them out of an impoverished situation. Here's Jay Rajaraman with more about this new federal emphasis on prevention and what it means for New Jersey. Thanks, Cassandra. For over 50 years, Legal Services of New Jersey, LSNJ, and the statewide legal services system it leads have provided free legal aid and advocacy to low-income parents in child welfare cases, seeking to promote child safety and well-being by strengthening and preserving families from advocacy and policy work, principally through its family representation project known as FRP. We were pleased to learn of the recent federal emphasis on preventive services, as well as the increased availability of Title IV-E funds made possible by the Family First Prevention Services Act, which marks a major shift in the way federal dollars can be spent at the state level. Prior to this act, Title IV-E funds could only be used to help with the cost of foster care maintenance for children, administrative expenses to managing the program, and training for staff, foster parents, and certain private agency staff along with adoption assistance and kinship guardianship assistance. Now states with an improved Title IV-E plan have the option to use these funds for prevention services that would allow candidates for foster care to stay with their parents or relatives. These prevention services can include things like mental health services, addiction treatment, or in-home parent skill training with the goal of keeping that child with their parents or a relative without the income eligibility requirements previously associated with Title IV-E dollars. In addition to Family First, on December 19, 2018, ACF's Child Welfare Policy Manual modified its manual to say legal services to children or parents are considered to be allowable expenses under administrative costs. Now, states will be able to claim legal supports to children or parents under Title IV-E administrative costs as well. This means a 50% match for any state and county dollars contributed to the legal defense of either party. Recent studies from Washington State have shown that parent representation like this means less removals and better outcomes for families and children. The national message is clear that the funding priority is towards preventive services, 
and the goal is to keep children with their families as long as it is safe to do so. In the weeks leading up to Alice and Jay's 2018 Unification Day celebration, an annual event that recognizes and honors reunified families, I had the privilege of speaking with Jerry Milner, Associate Commissioner of the Children's Bureau with the Department of Health and Human Services. The theme of the event was the intersection of poverty and child welfare, so I began by asking him for his perspective on this important issue. Well, first of all, I think it's important to recognize that simply because a family lives in poverty does not mean that children are being maltreated. We can't confuse those two uh, concepts. However, it is a fact, as you've noted, that uh, a large majority of our children uh, come into foster care uh, from very poor families. Uh, the single biggest reason that we get uh, reports of child maltreatment in the country and the biggest reason that uh, children enter the foster care system uh, is because of neglect. Again, without trying to equate poverty and neglect, it is a fact that when families are struggling with poverty and, and many of the underlying issues that are associated with poverty, that can reduce their protective capacity. It can reduce their ability uh, to care for their children in safe and healthy ways. Uh, many of those families are also overexposed in terms of reporting. Uh, they may be more visible and um, more easily reported than families that, uh, that might be maltreating their children but who are in a different socioeconomic uh, status. While poverty can, as I've said, reduce the protective capacity of parents, I think we have a lot of opportunity um, out there to try to strengthen families' ability to care for their children in safe and healthy ways, even if they're gonna continue to live in impoverished circumstances. By focusing our efforts on community-based programs where families can get the kinds of supports that they need before they reach a crisis point, uh, many, many very poor families still are able to give their children the love, the nurture, the support that they need. So often when we intervene in the child welfare system and we remove children from their families, I don't think we always understand that we are um, in many ways exacerbating the trauma that may have already uh, occurred in the lives of those families. And not just the children, but the trauma that many of those parents themselves have experienced through their own uh, childhood and their own adult lives and have not been able uh, to resolve. I talked with Commissioner Milner about one of our Unification Day honorees, Kanita, who had spent time in homeless shelters in the past and exhausted her 12-month lifetime limit on emergency assistance. When she was asked to leave a friend's apartment, she went to the local welfare office for help, and the worker contacted the Division of Child Protection and Permanency to report that the family was homeless. I got into it with a friend, got kicked out. Um, I went to social services in Freehold. They told me I didn't qualify. Um, so right then, she got on the phone and she called Dyfus. It wasn't about drugs, it wasn't about crime, it was strictly for homelessness. That was the call. That was, it was, it's, it's trying to get help. They told me that because I was in a, a shelter for nine months, and before then, it was a shelter, it was three months. So they only give you a year. So when they give you a year, you have to go in for an extension, it's either if they give you the extension, they'll tell you how long you'll be able to stay for however many days or a month or whatever. I didn't qualify for that. So if social services tells you that you're not qualified, even when you call a shelter, 
then it's nothing you can do. And I think in Middlesex, it's only five shelters. So if they're full, then it's no way you can be able to, you're just going to wait. And it's a waiting list. It's a shame that you have to have a waiting list for shelters, but that's just what it is. This was Jerry Milner's response. It's incredibly unfortunate and depressing to hear those kinds of stories. Uh, for uh, someone like me who's spent my entire life, adult life, uh, uh, working in the child welfare system, that we are so willing as a system uh, to pay someone else to care for a child in a foster care situation or to pay for therapy uh, to try to undo some of the damage that's been done as opposed to try and support a family to keep that child safely under, under their own roof or to give them the kind of a roof that they need where a child can be safe and protected and, and feel connected. Uh, to that family. That's not what our current system typically does. Um, when we have that kind of flexible funding that would allow us to step outside of uh, some of our funding stream requirements, oftentimes it is very limited. Uh, oftentimes, more oftentimes than not, it's local money or it's state money than it is federal money. What we would like to see uh, in, in the Children's Bureau is a, a greatly expanded flexibility in the federal funds that we contribute uh, to uh, child welfare services in the states and in, in, uh, and in counties so that those kinds of preventive efforts, those kinds of family strengthening supportive efforts uh, are something that we could at least participate in financially and help to keep families together. But in order to do that, uh, we really have to do, I think, a very serious re-examination of what we think child welfare ought to be uh, and what the outcomes are that we want to see for children and families and how we want to do our work. Part of that, uh, absolutely, is that we have to recognize that while the flexibility in funding is absolutely critical, again, the child welfare system is so much more than the agency. Where I see the child welfare systems being very successful in meeting some of those very basic needs of, of families out there, they're doing it in close partnership uh, with so many different other entities. Uh, there are examples of integrated human services agencies out there where the whole housing uh, part of the puzzle is, is a part of uh, the broader system. But even when those systems, those public systems, are not thoroughly integrated, I think we're missing a tremendous opportunity when we're not trying to come together with a, a joint vision of how we can support families across agency lines, pool our resources, pool our thinking, pool our efforts, uh, so that collectively we're able to meet some of those concrete needs of, of children and families. Unfortunately, it is those concrete needs or the absence uh, of, of those concrete needs that so often leads families uh, into the doors of the child welfare agency. When he first took all three of um, my kids, he put them all three in three different foster homes until I start complaining about it because um, when you, as a mom, I have two girls. So I needed someone to watch my two girls because me being sexually assaulted when I was younger, I don't know these people. I mean, Dyfus knows these people, they do their little run through, but it's nothing like being a mom and actually, you know, knowing where your girl's at and are they safe? Because you can be a foster parent and you can also have 
other people outside coming in and, you know, doing things to children. It's this feeling of, like, panic. So I, I would have, sometimes I would have um, panic attacks. Unfortunately, in our child welfare system, that's our typical response. We intervene after something has happened. Our primary mechanism for protecting children is, unfortunately, removing them from their families. And inadvertently, I believe that we exacerbate the trauma and then we are faced sometimes with years of, of, of trying to help uh, children and their families put those pieces back together, sometimes successfully and sometimes not. He had this to say about Family First. I think Family First uh, is, is a landmark piece of legislation, uh, absolutely. It opens up uh, a new funding stream for prevention of, of foster care placement that we haven't had in place before. It gives us the opportunity to use our largest pot of money, federal money, uh, in the child welfare system, Title IV-E, uh, to provide prevention services. Uh, while it does uh, give us that great opportunity to try to keep children out of foster care. In order to qualify for those, uh, for those services and for federal reimbursement of those services, uh, children are most often going to already be known to the child welfare agency, which typically means something has already happened. They've been maltreated, reported to the agency, and they are determined to be at imminent risk of entering the foster care system. Families First fills a very critical, important gap in the prevention continuum by allowing us to provide services to that group of children and their families. What we would like to see is, in conjunction with that, flexibility to also go upstream so that we can provide those community-based family support services before the child or the family ever necessarily becomes known. To the, uh, to the child welfare system. The other thing that I will uh, add about that is that by focusing the prevention services in Family First on substance abuse treatment, mental health treatment, and some in-home um, parent skill building services, I think it does or it will uh, give us the opportunity to address some of the underlying factors uh, that in fact may be contributing to not just child maltreatment, but to uh, the, the poverty status of, of, of families. Many families may find themselves in poverty because of a substance abuse issue or because of a mental health issue. Um, and being able to provide services to address some of those underlying causes, I think uh, will be a real, a real uh, step forward for us. Since this interview last summer, momentum has been building in New Jersey. In August 2018, Alice and Jay began a new partnership with the Essex County DCPP offices, a comprehensive multidisciplinary approach to strengthen prevention efforts and family stabilization in that county, which has the largest child welfare caseload in the state. In the first six months, the Essex County DCPP offices have referred over 40 parents to Alice and Jay for civil legal assistance. Alice and Jay's new Essex County initiative focuses on steps that can be taken to prevent the need for removal of children by DCPP. Typically, these involve a family where the children have not been removed from their caregivers and a petition has not been filed with the court, but where DCPP involvement has commenced or appears possible. Our goal is to help these families remain intact and avoid removal of their children, using legal representation as a catalyst to address and resolve whatever issues threaten family stability. 
Commissioner Milner also visited Allison Jay's Edison office to speak with parents who have been involved with the division. Coverage of that event is available on our website, www.allisonjay.org. Thanks for listening. We'd like to thank Jerry Milner for his time and Kanita for sharing her story with us. Additional footage from his interview, Kanita's full story, and his visit to legal services can be found in the Poverty in Focus section of our website, lsnj.org slash Poverty in Focus, and on our YouTube channel, Legal Services NJ.